Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, hey there. We're talking about photography this morning, tips from an expert. And But before we get started, we have to get our blast from the past historical question. And that historical question, and I know there are people out there that know the answer to this. What San Francisco private eye took the only known ID picture of a federal witness program, witness protection program member, Gerald Zelmanowitz, a.k.a. Paul Maris, who was a hoodlum, a mafia... Um, snitch, a con man from the 1980s. Who was that San Francisco PI? I know there's somebody out there with that answer. Well, do you want to hear photography tricks and tips? I'm sure it comes as no surprise that one of the many tasks performed by PIs is taking photographs for all kinds of reasons, mostly for documentation. Certified evidence photographer and actually photographer extraordinaire because he does all kinds of things, weddings, corporate stuff, and all kinds of types of uh, photography is Keith Rosenthal. And he's with us today. Keith's interest in photography started when he was 10. Um, I can't even remember when I was 10, but he's, he does, evidently. Uh, now he has more than 40 years of accreditation as a professional photographer. He actually studied under a man who was known as the Dean of Photographers for Look Magazine, Earl Thyssen. He recently earned a Professional photo Photographic Certification Commission Certified Evidence Photographer de designation, uh, measuring his technical skills after meeting very rigorous requirements. And he's actually one of less than 550 um, photographers worldwide to earn this designation. So he he builds specialized equipment. He uh, designs specialized equipment. He does all kinds of extra things um, he's going to tell us about. So um, he, you know, he's had some uh, noted credentials to his name, uh, photographing many Fortune 500 companies. He was actually the artist in residence for the San Francisco Giants ballpark, uh, dominating, uh, do dominating, documenting, um, a three-year-plus construction, and was Transamerica's Senior PGA Golf Championship official photographer all the time they were uh, doing their tournaments. 
So I welcome. Hi, Keith. How are you today? Good morning, Francie. How are you doing? Thank you so much for being here. This is going to be fun. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people um, that are listening in will have questions about photography, whether they call in and ask them. I know they'll be very listening very critically. Well, photography is definitely something that people are very interested in. It seems like every phone, every camera, uh, everything that people use in their everyday life seems to have a camera in it, and people are uploading pictures and enjoying pictures, and I hope I can help some people with some information about how to take better pictures. I'm sure you can. So so tell me, when you were, you said you were started out when you were 10 or when you became interested when you were 10, what was your first camera? Do you remember? Oh, it was an obvious, uh, you know, it was like a, like a brownie, and uh, my mother bought it for me, and I was just fascinated with the fact that I could do something and have people enjoy what I did. It was a way to kind of share the world around me. Uh, obviously, I wasn't good at it at first, uh, but what really took off was my interest once I got into high school. Um, I had a photography teacher who I still stay in touch with, and um, uh, he really lit a fire under me, and I became the school photographer and the, 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 the photographer for the newspaper for the school mm-hmm. and started winning awards, and it just took off from there, and it became a lifelong career. When did it change from being a hobby to an actual career? Pretty much in high school. In 1966, I graduated, and um, I was already working in the field, and then uh, it pretty much saved my life uh, uh, by letting me get in the Air National Guard instead of getting drafted. And I was a photographer in the Air National Guard for six years and learned a tremendous amount and was very, uh, very able to share that information with uh, with you know, the people that I was working with. So it was really a great, great learning experience. And what kind of photographs are you taking in the Air National Guard? Everything from uh, passport pictures, uh, pictures of generals, pictures of uh, people getting awards. Um, I did a lot of pictures of uh, if there was an accident, an airplane ran into another airplane on the, on the uh, tarmac, let's say that the, a piece of equipment rolled over and put a dent in an airplane or something, they would want photographs of it. Um, I took pictures of things that broke. Um, you know, if they were lifting an engine and a crane cracked, I would go over and I would do uh, detailed examination of the of the photograph and take pictures, non-destruction inspection type pictures uh, under uh, ultraviolet light and and uh, infrared light and and find what was the the cause of the problem. And at that time, Keith, were you self-taught or had you had some? some additional training besides your high school photography teacher? Well, at, the, at that time I was going to a junior college and I was also in a, a, a lot of courses with Earl Tyson who was a fantastic um, uh, photographer for Look Magazine, photographed Marilyn Monroe and all kinds of the Kennedys, all kinds of interesting people. And he just happened to be having a class that um, I kept enrolling in um, year after year and I learned a tremendous amount from him. He was uh, a, a really, really good technician and a, a genuinely great teacher and a good friend. And he really encouraged me and introduced me to a lot of other photographers that would then hire me as a, an assistant. So it was a good inroad. And at the same time, I was working at a camera store, so I was learning about all of the, the different cameras that were out there on the market and uh, um, you know, just immersed myself in it. It was a great education. You must have just been in heaven. Oh, I was loving it. And it actually got me, you know, into the National Guard uh, 
where I learned uh, so much about uh, the technical part of it and uh, development of film, uh, very precision development of film and aerial photography and uh, the different uh, um, um, you know technical parts of optics. And I had to um, take uh, it was it would call it a home study course because um, it was basically books that I had to read and then pass tests. And uh, for such a young guy, I really had a lot of information, but it was good uh, level information for um, for somebody that was going to go into that field for a career because I was learning all about the chemistry, the film, the optics, lighting, um, and also how to work with people and how to do portraits and how to do um, uh, close-up photography, um, how to do um, uh, just just average kind of group photographs, mm-hmm. uh, generals shaking hands with somebody, giving them an award. All of that still comes. I always, I always think that I, I made all my mistakes back then, and now I get you know, paid because I don't make mistakes anymore. And uh, ho- hopefully all of my mistakes went away. And that's really what I always tell people when they say, what's the difference <laughs> between a professional photographer and an amateur? It's basically that you made all your mistakes and learned from them, and you don't make them anymore people that continue to make mistakes over and over again with their camera. They just aren't stopping and learning, and, and uh, that's what you have to do. So the majority of your career you've spent doing mainly commercial photography. Is that correct? Um, yes, um, uh, large corporate jobs, uh, large corporate um, uh, projects, I'll call them, uh, for, for corporations that would want me to document what they were doing either on an outing um, or if they had a project like uh, Pacific Bell Park, you had mentioned that. That was a big, big project. and um, A great was, project, too. Wonderful, wonderful thing to photograph. It was very interesting, uh, and it started out being just a job to photograph the entire building project and hopefully come out with a book about that. Um, and uh, oh, very early on into it, I realized that I was actually the uh, the eyes for the the fans that couldn't be inside the fence. So mm-hmm. uh, you know they had a fence all the way around it, and uh, people would come and they would hang on the fence, looking inside, just uh, imagining the fact that their their ballpark was about to be built. And uh, because I could go anywhere at any time uh, during that period of time, I was out taking pictures up in the cranes, any place. And um, my photographs would then become the documents that they would be able to see of how that ballpark was built because it was a magnificent, magnificent spot for a ballpark. It's, yeah, it is. It's fabulous. And anybody that watches the, the Giants games knows, or in the tournament knows, that uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful atmosphere, a wonderful sight right on the water. It's just uh, amazing. Well, I think that everybody that has seen the World Series now and seen the ballpark and seen what a gorgeous spot it is and that they can, you know, hit, hit, hit a ball over the, the, the wall and have it splash into the, to the bay, it, it, that's just a, really a special, amazing uh, thing that, that people that are interested in uh, baseball, um, that's just unique, really, really unique. And I've either stepped on or ripped my pants on practically every piece of rebar in that stadium, <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, it's a great project. So, so you recently, well, maybe not recently, you became interested in evidence-type photography, and you um, recently got certified. How did yes. you make that transition? Well, I'm actually one of the few people that is certified in the world that came from the photography uh, end. Um, the organization that certifies photographers for this kind of work is called um, EPIC, the 
Evidence Photographers International Council. Mm-hmm. And this is um, a group of people that for about 40 years they've been getting together and having this association to uh, give professional training and uh, um, camaraderie to other people that are doing this. And most of those people are or, or were in law enforcement. Um, uh, they came from the FBI or from police, uh, sheriff departments uh, all over the country that would be interested in documenting for legal purposes, mm-hmm. forensic-type photography. And I'm really one of the few... Uh, photographers that came from the photography side and came into the legal side, into the, 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 the law enforcement side. I'm not a police person. I'm not law enforcement in any way. Um, I'm all photography. And what my original interest was, was to teach uh, the, the first responders how to use their equipment better so that they could do a better job of doing what they need to do. That's, and, yes, um, absolutely. And you're talking about first responders to a crime scene. Either a crime scene or a fire, arson investigation, mm-hmm. um, uh, marine, and any any anybody that's using a camera to document something that could later on be used to help our society to prove either guilt of somebody or innocence of somebody. In other words, the camera becomes the uh, spokesperson for for the the the, the uh, facts that are maybe not there anymore. Yeah, that's. That's really important because I can tell you that I've gotten photos that you just couldn't tell what they were, <laughs> no matter what you did. Um, I hear, yeah, I hear that all the time uh, when yeah. police, uh, when district attorneys, and I, I talk with district attorneys or, or people that are attorneys, and they tell me that the photography that they get is just almost unusable. Yeah. And when I teach photography, I try to tell people, you are the eyes for the jury. You are doing something that they can't do because this evidence is sometimes going to be um, transient. It's maybe a fingerprint that's going to be washed away or a footprint in snow that's going to melt. So you're, you're really doing something that is a transient moment at some point, and your photographs are going to be the only evidence that will connect either the perpetrator of a crime or to, to, to uh, exonerate somebody and, and prove that they're innocent. So you're, you're really a critical focus. You know, and what what do you think is the biggest mistake that are that is made in a situation like that? Well, I think first of all, attitude. You know that people don't realize how important it is, um, and and it starts right at the person's attitude to take it seriously. And um, if somebody has handed a camera and said, you know, we're going to need you to take pictures of you know an accident scene, the person has to understand that down the road these pictures are going to be a very critical link between the jury's decision, the judge's information, uh, um, you know, all of this is going to be used critically. So therefore, uh, your, your um, uh, focus of your attention should be on uh, what should I be taking pictures of? Uh, stop thinking about the fact that it's lunchtime. Stop thinking about the fact <laughs> that, you know, you need to move uh, something later on this afternoon that's, you know, uh, uh, going to have to get done, but you're, you need the time to do this now. So take the time because this is something that has to be done. So get very serious about it. So attitude is really the first place to put yourself in that, that mindset. And okay. then, if, you know, even before that, you really should be prepared. You know, your batteries should be charged. 
your camera should be ready to go. You should have Hold on to that thought, Keith, because those are important things. We need to take a break, and today we're talking about photography. Stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Expert photographer Keith Rosenthal is with us today to help us all be better photographers. Keith, you were just talking about being prepared. Could you just run through that again? Because that's such a big issue. 
Well, before um, the call comes to uh, rush out and do something, um, you need to be prepared with your equipment, um, and all batteries need to be charged. All equipment needs to be in your in your bag, in your possession, so that um, if you were to run out the door, you have everything with you. You can't get onto a a scene or onto a job and realize that you left the most important cord behind right. or, or the charger for your, your battery and your battery's dead, something like that. So you really have to be ready to go, uh, sort of like the crash card in a hospital. It has to be ready to go, plugged in the wall, ready to go. And then you have to, you, you can't be prepared for every single thing that's going to be thrown at you, but you have to have backups to everything. So if a camera was to break in the middle of doing something and you could you would know that um, you have to have a backup uh, camera backup lens backup batteries backup um, uh, memory cards so everything that could possibly go wrong that would be an easy thing to back up um, you should have a backup that way you will be a lot more relaxed uh, and you'll be able to uh, function if something breaks you just grab another one the 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 basic thing is I don't want to be standing there giving an excuse. There are no excuses. You come back with the photographs or you just um, are not doing your job. Yeah, many times you're only going to have one opportunity and that's it. Yes, and uh, it's very critical, especially when you're doing evidence photography. Um, it's, it's very, very important that uh, everything is thought through thoroughly and you you can't at all, all scratch your head and say gee I never thought that would happen you have to think through um, you know all the possibilities sure well so Keith what makes um, a certified evidence photographer different than a, another type of professional photographer well it's important to understand the photography aspect of it but it's also important to understand the legal side of it so there are certain things that you uh, can do and certain things that you shouldn't do um, that you should know about because um, um, little things like erasing photographs from your memory card during the, the, the taking of the pictures, that's a big no-no. You don't want to do that. Okay. Um, so um, uh, you need to know some of the parts of the legal system that would question you later and and, and, and scrutinize what you're doing and there is a guideline that's put out by the uh, SWIGET, uh, which is the International um, uh, Association for Identification. Uh, that's uh, IAI. Uh -huh. And if you go to their website, the IAI website, um, they have a listing for digital photography. It's called SWIGET, the Scientific Working Group on Image Imaging Technology. Okay. Okay, very, very interesting and a great education for anybody that's interested in photography for legal purposes. They should read every single one of the um, uh, sections. There's a whole bunch of sections that deal with different things like downloading photographs and photoshopping photographs, all different aspects of it. And I highly recommend that as an education to any PI or any photography student or any photographer that's interested in uh, uh, technical um, documentation of, of uh, uh, either crime scenes or arson or anything that has to do with forensic photography, which is basically going to be used in court. And that's um, I-A-I, so, and how do you spell Swigit? Swigit is S-W-G-I-T, 
and it stands for the Scientific Working Group on Imaging Technology. You know, and Keith, we'll put that on the uh, PIs Declassified website under your bio, and so people can uh, easily access that information. That's a very sure. good tip. The link to it is very uh, easy to get to. Um, it's extremely well written. Um, I have read many books on the subject and not come up with as much information as that website has on it. Um, it is the current state-of-the-art for police departments and for uh, FBI and um, uh, for, for courtrooms to point to and say, this is the standard operating procedure that has been accepted by the IAI, and it is a working group of professionals that have scrutinized uh, each line, every word, every sentence of this information, and they have, in a very professional way, uh, put forth the information that a photographer would need to know so that the, the person could follow a guideline, and the police call them standard operating procedures. You'll hear them called SOPs. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if you ever get to a courtroom and um, the person uh, asking you the question uh, says, you know, did you follow an SOP, you would then be able to bring forth this information and say, this is the standard for how to do this, and I followed these um, recommendations to the letter. That's great. So you don't have to make it up as you're going along and wonder, oh, what should I be doing here? How should I do this? They actually will show you on the website um, that you need, let's say you're taking a picture of a, a shoe print. You need you know, a certain certain type of lens, a normal lens. You can't do it with a wide-angle lens. It has to be done with a normal lens. Mm -hmm. It has to be done a certain way that, that uh, the shoe print needs to be photographed straight on. Um, usually you're, you're over it, and um, it has to be done with three photographs, one photograph showing the entire footprint, one photograph showing the heel section, one photograph showing the front section, and the reason for that is so that it can be put back together again as a larger photograph. It can be uh, uh, put together like a panorama, stitched together, mm -hmm. and uh, have higher resolution. And what but about Keith taking a photograph, um, how do I say this, further in, in the distance so you can show where that footprint was placed? Yes, there's a whole the uh, standard operating procedure for taking pictures of any evidence, which would start out with the overview, and I call it the four corners of the of the the uh, informational zone. So you would take pictures from all directions looking in and looking out, and you would include things like fire hydrants and telephone poles and things that are going to not move, so later on somebody could go and make measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually take photographs that have been uh, already taken and somebody hands you an 8 by 10 and measurements can be made from that photograph. It's called photogrammetry. And that's another one of those things that you have to learn how to do to be a certified evidence photographer is be able to make accurate measurements when you're given a photograph and, and you weren't the photographer that took the picture, so you weren't there, but I'm looking at a photograph that might have been taken 20 years ago. Okay. That's called photogrammetry. Okay, so like so, if somebody, if there was a video of somebody robbing a bank, you could identify the height of the person based on what was their surrounding objects were? 
Yes, that's why they have the lines on the door at the, you know, the 7-Elevens have a line on the door showing height. Mm -hmm. They usually have a black and white checked floor, and each one of those floor tiles is 12 inches. And the photographer can actually go back and um, uh, figure out from where the video camera was, um, uh, make angular measurements then, and determine exact heights and widths of shoulders and, and sizes of uh, their face, uh, okay. uh, distance between eyes, um, um, uh, if they were with somebody, if they were carrying something, uh, how big their stride might be. Things like that can be measured from those photographs, and it, it's taken frame by frame from the video and made into a still photograph. Interesting. Well, and, and you also evaluate and analyze photographs that have been taken um, by law enforcement or by are being used by the prosecution. How does that work? Well, uh, a, a, let's say that a, a defense attorney um, might be uh, using, they have some photographs that the police department might have taken, um, and they're trying to prove a point. And they don't understand um, uh, a particular point about the photographs. They might ask me uh, to look at the photographs and then determine if uh, something relevant to the case um, um, usually when I've been asked, they don't tell me what they're looking for. They just tell me, tell me what you see. And then they ask me questions based on what I see so that I'm not uh, determining ahead of time, you know, that I'm, they're not saying, look at this and tell us if the person could have done this. They just will look at it and say, what do you see? And um, I will say, well, based on the shadow here, I can see that that wasn't up against the wall. And, oh, they didn't know that. They didn't know that they could tell that by looking at the photograph. So mm -hmm. I will um, determine um, uh, certain things in the photographs by looking at them critically. And sometimes it's really just I, I have microscopes and I put them under the microscope and look at the photograph critically. And sometimes it's actually things that they haven't even seen. There's a clock up on the shelf and it's um, a certain time. And mm -hmm. they say, mm -hmm. you know, wow, that, I didn't realize that that clock was even there. You know, so it, sometimes it's looking closely at it. Sometimes it's understanding lighting. And sometimes it's looking for a possible um, um, uh, either fraud or, or somebody's making a mistake. Somebody says that this person took this picture, and possibly the lighting proves that that camera couldn't have taken that picture. Oh, interesting. Well, so can you, can you tell if a photo is authentic? In most cases, you can. Um, when, it, when a photograph is taken and it's taken with film, um, you obviously, if you have the negative, you can see if it's been retouched. Um, you can see if the photograph has been retouched. Now, when it switches over to digital, it becomes a new world because obviously Photoshop can make changes in a photograph. And it's very difficult to tell on the photograph itself if the changes have been made in Photoshop. But if you are expert in, in, in finding out uh, more about the photography uh, that was done by looking at the, the actual file that, the, that the, when the picture is taken, when the camera takes the picture, it creates a file which is called an EXIF file. A what file? EXIF. EXIF. And okay. this file is the digital information that uh, goes along with the photograph. Um, and if you investigate that, uh, you can see possibly there was a 
um, an alteration made in the original picture to the picture that they're showing you as evidence, it might be different. So that gets very technical. But mm -hmm. yes, you can take a look at a photograph, and unless the person was really, really expert in, um, in fooling you, um, sometimes uh, it's very obvious that they have altered the photograph. Uh, and it's not just by looking at it, it's actually by looking at the di digital information and looking at the way the computer operates. Okay, and, and you mentioned Photoshop, and of course we're all familiar with that. That's uh, a program, a software program that uh, we can use to manipulate photographs. Can you use photo, uh, Photoshop when you're um, taking evidence photographs? Yes, um, you can use Photoshop, and, and you used a, a word, um, manipulate. Um, actually, a, 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 an evidence photographer would use the word enhanced. And okay. the reason I'm making that uh, distinction is because you're not allowed to make any changes. You're not allowed to add anything or subtract anything from an evidence photograph. That's, okay. that's cardinal rule. And um, what you're doing, basically, to make it real simple so people kind of understand what you can do with Photoshop, remember the, in the old days when the, photo, when the uh, televisions had knobs on them that would allow you to make adjustments to the contrast or the, mm -hmm. or the brightness or mm -hmm. the color or something like that? These are enhancements. So you're not really changing the content of the information that's coming into the television. You're just changing how it's displayed. So an evidence photographer or somebody that's processing a, a legal photograph in Photoshop is allowed to make changes that do not alter but enhance. So if I have a fingerprint that's, um, let's say, um, it's um, um, developed uh, when, you, when you put powder on a fingerprint, it's called developing the fingerprint. Right. And when, when you put that... Um, uh, let's say that that fingerprint is developed on a cover of a magazine, and the magazine has a whole bunch of different patterns and colors on it, and it makes it difficult to see the photograph uh, of the fingerprint. Mm -hmm. So by placing it, uh, by taking the original image and storing it as an original image, and you're not making alterations to the original image, you're just taking a copy of the original image, and now you're enhancing to bring out that, that photo, uh, fingerprint. So as you bring out that fingerprint, you are now able to identify who owns that fingerprint. And you can still show the judge or the jury that there is, here is the original photograph and here is the enhanced photograph. And you also have a complete history of all the changes that have been made. And Photoshop actually keeps track of all, every time you move anything or change anything in Photoshop, it has a history and it can be printed out. And then you can hand that history to another PI or to another uh, police department or district attorney or um, judge or whoever wants. They can copy exactly what you did, and they can see that there's no magic involved. Basically, they're copying your procedure, and what they end up with is the same thing. They just enhanced the photograph. Okay. So you haven't altered Keith, the we need to take a break. We've been discussing photography tips and tricks from an expert, Keith Rosenthal, and I will be back in a couple of minutes with Keith.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Pete Rosenthal is my guest today. He's been giving us very good advice to make us better evidence photographers. We're also going to talk about how to make us better hobby photographers as well. But uh, before we get to that, um, Keith, when should a PI call you in to take photographs? Well, that's a great question. The uh, PIs usually have a camera with them when they're investigating any kind of uh, um, um, job. And uh, sometimes they get into a situation where they don't have the right equipment or the right background knowledge. Um, uh, and that might be something like ultraviolet photography, infrared photography, underwater photography, aerial photography. Mm -hmm. um, 
The other side of that would be that they just don't have the equipment or the knowledge to use the equipment, such as real long lenses for doing very, very extreme telephoto work or microscopic work. Um, I have a number of uh, very, very unique uh, microscopes for taking pictures of evidence. And the normal person just wouldn't have that, and the normal PI would probably not have that. What about available. taking photographs of documents? Uh, for photographing documents, uh, I do a lot of um, uh, different lighting situations and scenarios. So, um, it, you know, it shouldn't be just left to somebody to take a picture and say, well, it just didn't turn out. Um, it, it really maybe needs to have a more technical um, eye put to it and, and somebody that has really uh, trained in that particular um, uh, forensic um, field, you know, and document photography is really very critical, and most people don't have the equipment to photograph that properly. Mm -hmm. Well, th that brings up a question of lighting, um, because it sounds like documents would require just exact lighting. When do you use a flash and when don't you? Well, if you're doing photographs outside of people, and let's say that you're on vacation, make it simple for people. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I see people don't understand is how far a flash will go. Um, so they'll be up in the um, uh, 300th row at the ballpark, and they're taking a picture at night with the flash. And when their picture comes back, they get maybe the guy's bald head in front of them and nobody out on the field. They have to understand that the flash goes about 6 to 12 feet at the most from these little little handheld cameras. Really? Yes, a big professional camera that has a very powerful flash like what I would use on camera would maybe go 40 feet, 30 or 40 feet. Um, a big studio strobe, um, I can light up the outside of a building um, at night, um, but I'm putting out enough power with these strobes that, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it's a very, very powerful, and most people don't even own this kind of equipment. Mm -hmm. So if I needed to take a picture of something that was very far away using flash, I would either have to put out a tremendous amount of light or do it a different way with remote flashes, radio-controlled flashes, which I use a lot, uh, battery-operated slave flashes that might be out a distance from me. Um, so I have lit up, um, uh, you know, like a crime scene situation where it might be 130 feet from the front to the back and everything is perfectly lit. This has to be done with either uh, multiple exposures with one flash or many flashes. But in general, most people that use a flash on their, their little um, uh, um, miniature camera that they might uh, have at a party, let's say, mm -hmm. stay within 6 feet, 6 to 12 feet, stay close, um, uh, watch the background that you don't have any windows or picture frames or reflective surfaces that are going to come back at you, and keep your finger away from the front of the flash. The new cameras are so small and the flash is usually right where your finger will kind of hang over the front, and mm -hmm. that will, you know, you'll end up with this um, shadow of your finger on the person's, um, on, on, the, on the, 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 uh, the photograph. So keep your fingers out of the way, and um, uh, take several pictures. And uh, the reason for red eye uh, is because these cameras have such a, a close flash to the lens. In other words, the distance between the lens and the flash is very close, and the light goes in and lights up the blood in the back of the eye, and it turns red, and then we say, oh, we've got red eye here. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the best thing to do for that 
um, is to have the flash further away from the camera or with the new cameras they have a red eye reduction where it flashes the flash many times which I find almost useless because people usually don't know when you're taking the picture and they usually end up blinking. <laughs> so it's, it's best to get the flash away from the camera. Um, but also one last thing about flash is if you're taking pictures outside and you have the sun um, and it's, it's causing a lot of shadows, use your flash outside up to 6 to 12 feet away, the same thing. Turn your flash on and have the flash go off even though there's sun on the picture. It'll fill in those shadows underneath people's noses and eyes and really? make the picture look better. Really? Interesting. I, I, so what about, I know you have tips for taking a good group photo. What would those be? Well, I, I do group photographs. Um, this, is, this is my trick for doing group photographs. It, prepare. Everything is about the preparation. Let's say that you have a picture, and everybody has a time when they get together with their family, and they want to get a picture of everybody together because you're all in one spot. And it usually turns out to be kind of a nightmare because it's never easy to get people together and to stand next to each other, especially if they're usually you know, all from one family. There seems to be some kind of tension about maybe you know, once before you took a picture and didn't do a good job. And they're not, not too happy about wanting to do that. I mean, that's what I generally hear from people. So here's how to get over that. Before you take the picture, go outside and find a place that is going to be big enough for the group, have a nice background, move any chaise lounges or things out of the way, and get it prepared and kind of pace off. You've got 12 people to photograph. I'm going to maybe sit down the older people and have the other people standing behind them and visualize how the picture is going to be. Try to get it in a situation where all the lighting is even. You don't want half the group in sun and half the group in shade. Mm -hmm. Think through all these things. And then take a photograph and look at the photograph and see if there's any way to improve that. Uh, especially with the digital photograph, uh, it's like having a Polaroid. So you can see your mistakes before you have to live with them. So take a photograph, look at it. If everything is good... Make sure that your batteries are charged ahead of time. Make sure you've got room on your memory card. And make sure that you've got everything prepared and ready to go. And then announce, it's time to take the group photograph. People will go outside. They'll sit down. You'll quickly take the picture. You'll be done, and they'll say, oh, we always have to have you take the picture because you do such a good job. <laughs> really? Now, what about autofocus? That, that's a problem, isn't it? Why well, is, autofocus, why autofocus make? it's a great thing if you understand it. Okay. Um, uh, if in most of these cameras nowadays, I mean, they've gotten very sophisticated. Nowadays, if you're not smiling, it won't take a picture. Um, uh, they, the focus is usually uh, able to lock, and that means that you can l put the center of the, the picture, uh, the viewfinder, has a little box in it usually, and you can place that on whatever you want it to focus on and then push halfway down on the shutter release and it will focus and lock on it and then it's locked and you can recompose your picture and then you can move it around and it stays locked on the huh. part that you want to focus on. Okay. So I use, people say, do you use manual uh, focus or do you use autofocus? I use autofocus because it's basically doing the same thing I would do with my hand but I don't allow the autofocus to pick where it's going to focus. I put it on what I want to focus on, and then I lock it and move the camera over to recompose 
so that my photograph is composed properly, and I take the picture, but the camera fires uh, with the focus at the point that I want it to be at. And so when you're taking a group shot, where is that? Where do you place that focus? Well, if the group is in a, in a line and everybody is the same distance away from the camera, then you can basically just let the camera focus. It'll be easy to do it that way. And uh, remember that the camera focuses in a flat plane like a sheet of glass. And when you put people in a curve, which most group shots people put in a curve, mm -hmm. okay, the people who are closest to you are at a different point of focus than the people that are the furthest back. Okay? So okay. usually the best way to do that is to focus one-third of the way into the picture. So I would focus on um, maybe the second or third person on the left side of the curved group, and then I would lock it there and then move it and now take the picture. And I would then end up with the depth of field of the, of the, of the exposure of the, the, the lens being able to compensate and everybody would be in focus. You're always better to focus on the closest and have the back um, uh, kind of find its own focus. But ha that, is, that is a big, big problem with people if they're trying to get everything in focus and um, they don't focus on the correct spot, the people in the foreground are going to be out of focus and the people in the background will be maybe in focus. Um, usually where you see the problem is that maybe there's a group of people and there's a um, um, space between them and the autofocus focuses on the room behind the people and the people are out of focus. Okay. And so what you want to do is you want to put the focus... Uh, indicator on what you want to focus on, push halfway down, lock the focus, and then move the camera, and it should stay locked there, depending on your camera. Try it and see. It looks like we need to take a break again, Keith. More from Keith Rosenthal and the answer to the blast in the past historical question. Don't go away. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the Council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the Council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Time for the answer I've last from a past moment. Thank you to Ben Harold, curator of PI Museum. And the question was, what San Francisco private eye took the only ID picture of a Federal Witness Protection Program member whose name was Gerald Zelmanowitz, a.k.a. the infamous Paul Maris, Mafia Snitch, Con Man, and Hoodlum? The answer to that question is Sam Webster, a noted San Francisco PI. He's now deceased accidentally spotted Paul Maris on San Francisco's 3rd Street. Sam grabbed a camera just in the nick of time, and Maris did not have a clue that his picture was even being taken. So who is this Paul Maris? He was a con man that was living a high-roller lifestyle on the Federal Witness Protection Program and supported by us, the taxpayers. And it was Sam's picture that was instrumental in discovering Maris's true identity. Actually, Gerald... Manowitz, whose testimony against the Mafia got him relocated from the East Coast with a new identity for he and his family. Two other noted investigators involved, too, Hal Lipset and David Fetchheimer. Those of you that are PI aficionados will know those names. Hal followed a hunch and correctly deduced that Paul Maris' social security number and that of his wife, his brother, and his father-in-law could not have possibly been issued sequentially. The Witness Protection Program had created a key to unraveling a big case, so this became a dramatic expose in the 1980s of a threat to what they considered citizens from uh, the U.S. government placing criminals out on the streets and they were still operating in their old ways. Um, the government unfortunately learned to issue, not to issue, the sequential SSNs, Social Security Numbers and begin better practices for people that were in the Federal Witness Protection Program. So Sam got the money shot, like the professional photographers call it, because of this very brief second window of opportunity. And it was just another day at the office for these three San Francisco best private eyes, Hal Lipset, Sam Webster, and David Fetheimer. Isn't that a cool story, Keith? I think it's really interesting. There, there again, a camera played a, a part in making uh, life different. Absolutely, and it often does that, doesn't it? It's, it's capturing reality, um, whether we like it or not. Absolutely. And so um, back to um, our subject for the day, your tips and tricks. Um, if somebody wanted to call you, if they had a difficult case as a private investigator, or they were even a professional photographer that wanted some additional assistance, or just an everyday Joe that would like some technical knowledge, 
Would you be willing to take some calls? Certainly. I have a website, keithrosenthal.com, and I also um, have my phone number and my email address and all of that on keithrosenthal.com, and I'm happy to help. Um, you know, I get calls from students that want some direction in uh, where should I uh, get the information I need to go into this field. Um, I also get uh, questions from people that need some help where they need some photography and they need um, a photographer that's really uh, trained in, in developing, uh, uh, you know, the kind of evidence that they will need to uh, prove their point. Uh, so they can get in touch with me by just going to keithrosenthal.com and uh, all my contact information is on there. And listeners, if you if you don't remember that, his in contact information is also on the PIs Declassified website under this show title. And Keith, I wanted to be sure and have you cover some tips for composition that would help our fledgling photographers. Well, certainly, this this is um, whether they're professionals or or evidence photographers or just somebody taking pictures at a birthday party. Um, composition is usually um, um, something that people don't understand, and it's really just making the picture stronger. So if you eliminate the things that are distracting, you will usually make the picture stronger and have better composition. So if there's something on the edge of the photograph that doesn't really need to be there to tell the story, um, move the camera over and um, compose your picture so that it's the strongest image you could possibly make. Okay, and we have to go, Keith. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I could have talked to you another hour, I'm sure. Uh, next week, author and expert Army interrogator Greg Hartley, um, author of the book, uh, I, can, I Can Tell You're a Liar or something like that. I forget the name of it. But uh, anyway, uh, he's a great, uh, great author, great book. So tune in as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Thank you, Cleese, for being with us today. Appreciate it. It's Thank you. I enjoyed I enjoyed it, too. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.